How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're poking into the world of hydraulic fracturing or fracking. New technology for releasing gas bubbles trapped in shale rock has unreleased a bonanza in several states. Landowners who sell their mineral rights are becoming instant millionaires, while truckers, drillers, and others also making a pretty penny. Champions of natural gas say we're entering a golden age that restores American manufacturing competitiveness, creates jobs, and reduces greenhouse gas emissions. On the other side, people living near some wells are getting sick and lighting their faucets on fire. Natural gas detractors say uh, water supplies are being risked and that fuel really isn't any cheaper or any cleaner than the coal it's replacing to generate electricity. Over the next hour, we'll look at the good, the bad, and ugly of fracking with our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We're pleased to have with us three experts. T.J. Glothier is a former Deputy U.S. Secretary of Energy and a former board member at Union Drilling. Cassie Siegel is Director of the Climate Law Institute at the Center for Biological Diversity. And Mark Zoback is a professor at Stanford University's School of Earth Sciences and was a former member of the fracking panel convened by former U.S. Secretary of Energy Stephen Chu. Please welcome them to Climate One. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming. Uh, Mark Zoback, let's begin with you. Uh, fracking is a new technology, certainly a new term to, to many people, uh, but it's been around for quite a while. So tell us how you first learned about or got knowledgeable about fracking. Well, well in my case, uh, hydraulic fracturing was being used uh, for a purpose other than extracting hydrocarbons. It's actually a a way to measure the magnitude of the forces that are in the earth. So I started working in hydraulic fracturing in 1975 in the Mojave Desert, and we were trying to understand the forces to better understand earthquakes on the San Andreas Fault. So my introduction to it was sort of a non-conventional introduction. And then how about with regard to hydrocarbon extraction? When did that become something on your radar? Well, you know, it's it's always been there. Hydraulic fracturing has been around since 19... You know, the 1940s, the late 1940s, it's, uh, you know, it has a long history. It's always been part of oil and gas development, uh, principally applied to, perm- you know, uh, formations with low permeability. If the oil and gas wouldn't flow naturally, a hydraulic fracture would speed it up. The modern uh, version of hydraulic fracturing, horizontal drill, drilling and multiple hydraulic fractures from what's called the toe of the well back toward the heel, really started about seven or eight years ago uh, in the Barnett Shale in Texas, uh, an area close to Dallas-Fort Worth. And that was really the beginning of what's now being called the shale gas revolution. Okay, about seven years ago. Cassie Siegel, when did you get involved in this business of fracking? Oh, it's been uh, in the last four or five years that uh, the issue has really started growing, um, first nationally, um, calling for a uh, moratorium on fracking as the people uh, that were experiencing the first booms um, in, in Pennsylvania um, were uh, telling their stories about what was going on. Um, and recently it's just been really ramping up here in California as uh, we've realized that California has the largest shale oil reserves in the country and um, that if nothing is done and the boom takes off here, um, that large areas of California could be transformed almost overnight, as we've seen in Pennsylvania, North Dakota, uh, Texas, and other places. And we'll get into the pros and cons of that uh, transformation. Uh, T.J. Glossier, set the stage for us in terms of how much fracking is going on. Uh, this is something that's new to a lot of people. You know, uh, in terms of its impact and scale, how much fracking is for natural gas really is going on right now? Um, I'm not sure the exact number of wells, but it's something like 60% or more of the uh, oil and gas now in the country is being produced with the aid of fracking. So it's a large amount. It's tens of thousands of wells that have been fracked and uh, is a practice that is regulated at the state level. We'll talk more about that, I'm sure, but uh, that varies from state to state. Uh, There's a, a lot of it, and it's a common practice now. I think it is probably eight years ago or so, that it became more uh, more frequently used. Uh, 
So it's really been the last five years that we've had this huge uh, explosion of gas availability and gas prices that have gone down to such low levels. So something that's only seven or eight years old and now it's involved in 60% of the uh, wells, that's something that happened pretty quickly. Mark Zoback, can you help us with the scale and sense of how much of this is going on and and its impact on the energy supply? Well, right now there are about 20,000 wells a year that are drilled horizontally and then hydraulically fractured. Each well has between about five and 15 hydraulic fractures on order, on, on average. So there's 20,000 wells, uh, roughly 200,000 hydraulic fractures carried out every year. There are 150,000 or so shale gas wells that are out there currently producing. And what's been the market impact of this new technology? Well, it's, you know, it's been remarkable. Um, you know, the, the local benefit to uh, state economies, whether it's jobs or tax revenues, uh, at the national scale, people are talking about a manufacturing renaissance in the, in, in the Midwest. I guess we'll see if that, you know, uh, comes about. Uh, American consumers are paying one-third for natural gas what they were paying, you know, before the large-scale production of shale gas. And on the other side of the coin, you know, uh, CO2 emissions from coal are down 20% in just the last uh, few years. Um, and all of the other, you know, pollution problems, health problems associated with coal are also uh, diminishing uh, thanks to the increased use of natural gas. So there are many, you know, positive benefits, but there are also, you know, environmental impacts, and, and that's what we're here to discuss tonight. Cassie Siegel, do you agree that natural gas is better than coal in terms of health impacts and climate impacts? I don't. Uh, the, the fracking boom has transformed our energy economy, but I think it's come at an unacceptable price. And the fact is that fracking poisons um, our air and our water. It brings um, terribly intense industrial development to previously peaceful communities. The nature of shale development is that you have to drill lots and lots of wells. And to keep up production, you have to keep drilling more wells. It's conventional development on steroids. And sometimes um, fracking is promoted based on the argument that natural gas is a climate-friendly fuel. But uh, it's not, and it's actually been called into question whether even burning natural gas in a power plant is better um, than burning coal if the methane leakage rate during production and transmission is higher than about 3%, then the actual life cycle uh, carbon impact of burning natural gas is actually worse than coal. So it's not a bridge to a clean energy future. It's actually a bridge to extreme climate disruption because the fact is that we have to leave the great majority of fossil fuel reserves in the ground today. That's global warming's new math, and um, we're, we're, we're running out of time to solve the problem. Coming off the warmest year on record, Frankenstorm Sandy um, epitomizes the increasing damages we're facing um, from the climate crisis. And, uh, you know, fracking promises us a 100 years of natural gas, but we we can't burn that natural gas. We have to transition as as rapidly as possible to a clean energy future. And I think we should do that um, without fracking and and without trashing our air and water and our health to get at extreme and unconventional fossil fuels, but instead make the renewable energy transition. So, T.J. Glasser, I I was thinking you would, yes. (laughs) Okay. Um, I think that natural gas has a very important role to play in our conversion to a cleaner economy and a cleaner future. Um, I don't think that it is at all worse than coal. I think coal is uh, something that has we've depended upon for 150 years. It's had a role that's been important, but uh, it is extremely dirty and dangerous, uh, you know, all sorts of problems that uh, we are moving away from. And we're doing it naturally. The uh, economics of gas are actually doing that. And so uh, we are using less coal, more gas. And what we ought to do is focus on how we make this transition in an effective way so that we can get more and more renewable energy, more conservation, you know, get more out of the energy that we are using. And I think the issue with gas and fracking is that we need to regulate it well. So we need to produce gas this way and oil. Uh, fracking is being used for oil production now, too. It's not just gas. But we need to regulate each stage of what we're doing. The 
the actual drilling operations, the fluids that are used for fracking, the production process, and uh, you know, go right through each of these areas, I think it's possible to do it in a way that's responsible and safe and will uh, help us move ahead to a, an appropriate future. Let's go to this gas versus coal question a, a minute. Uh, in January of 2013, uh, the journal Nature uh, had an article that said there was an eye-popping, quote, 9% release of methane from uh, some, a shale oil area in, in Utah. That's double what the industry figure had, had been. And at those levels, uh, natural gas is not cleaner than coal because methane is so much more potent than than uh than carbon dioxide. Would you agree that that's a key figure? Uh, that the life cycle, that the, comparing coal yes, and gas depends on the amount of methane released in getting the, the, the gas that, out. Yes, methane is a, a more powerful greenhouse gas uh, substance. So if, it, if the leakage rate is high enough, then that will be a, a problem. But I think that one incident, I'm not familiar with the details of that one, but I don't think that's something you can characterize as being typical or representative. But many people would say we're not sure how much, that's, uh, that we don't know how much uh, fracking is, methane's being leased, re- released from fracking. So, Mark Zoback, do we really know? Mm-hmm. There's a lot, you mentioned a number of a thousands of wells. Are those wells being monitored and how much methane is being escaped during the uh, use of those wells? Well, they're not being monitored uh, adequately, and this is a really important question and a lot more work has to be done. You know, it, it's interesting, the study in Utah you know, has nothing to do with shale gas wells. And the fact of the matter is poorly constructed wells uh, are a real problem in the oil and gas industry and always have been. And uh, it's, a, you know, it's a legacy of, of leaking wells that has to be addressed. But it's, it's, it's a different topic. What it has in common with shale gas uh, development is that it's not the hydraulic fracturing that causes the problem. In every single case that's been investigated, it's a poorly constructed well that's caused the problem. And we know how to do that better. So really, it, it's not, it has, it's completely unrelated to hydraulic fracturing. It is related to shale gas development. And one would say if the leakage is occurring, the leakage is occurring, and therefore it's bad. It is bad and needs to be stopped. But the way to stop it is to do a better job of having, you know, better standards, better enforcement, better regulations, and better enforcement of the regulations of how the wells are, are uh, constructed, and then to, and to follow that up with monitoring. Uh, so identify what the problem is and then go out and solve it. Uh, the problem is not actually the hydraulic fracturing. Cassie Siegel, do you agree this is a problem that can be solved, that the methane can be contained, and if that happens, then gas will be better than coal? Methane um, from oil and gas can absolutely be reduced, and we need to do it. We're not going to turn off the switch on fossil fuels tomorrow. There will be some fossil fuel use in the next few decades as we transition. And everybody's known that controlling methane from oil and gas is a critical thing to do. That's not new. The EPA put out a big report on uh, short-lived climate uh, forcers in 2006 talking about the readily available cost-effective and even cost-positive measures to capture methane from oil and gas wells. Absolutely. But the thing is, you know, it's often natural gas, if you captured all the methane, um, is often compared as if we did capture all the methane um, to, to other impacts. But the fact is, is that we're not. We're not doing it. We're not reducing other air pollutants. And, um, you know, the EPA um, has just missed an opportunity um, in the Clean Air Act rulemaking to control methane um, from oil and gas. And so I just think that... Um, you know, the, the solutions have been around for years, and we haven't adopted them. So I don't think we can use the fact that you could clean up oil and gas as an excuse from getting away um, from the big policy changes that we really need to drive us off of all fossil fuels. So do you think there ought to be a moratorium, a ban right now, a sort of a pause, or that how should the U.S. proceed and states proceed with this that's happening sounds very quickly, the last five years, thousands of wells? I absolutely think we should have a ban on fracking. I mean, I and many others are also working for an end to burning coal um, for, you know, to protect the Arctic um, from drilling and for no Canadian tar sands and no Keystone Pipeline. But I think no fracking is a big part of a really sensible energy policy going forward. But is that even some environmentalists would say that's not pragmatic, that fracking is here, it's a reality, it's mainstream technology, it's not going to happen. Environmental Defense Fund, other environmental organizations will not support a ban. 
Well, I can imagine a world with no fracking, and I can imagine a world where the United States doesn't spend $500 billion a year on fossil fuel subsidies. Um, and I think we can do it with renewables. Mark Jacobson down um, at Stanford has a great new study out um, on how New York can get to 100 uh, percent renewables by 2030. And New York is a tough case because New York right now is almost completely dependent on coal, oil, and gas for its energy. And he's shown um, how with a, with a fairly substantial capital investment, you could get to 100% renewables by 2030, and that would be paid back in 17 years by the money you save from uh, the health improvements alone in getting off of fossil fuels. And he's, he's working on a plan for California where, of course, we already have um, a large portion of, of our energy from renewables. Uh, update us on what Governor Cuomo has done in New York. He's gotten a lot of celebrity and press attention fracking in New York City, partly because of the the water supply downstate for New York City. So where is the fracking in, in New York State right now? Well, New York has a moratorium on fracking while they study the health and envi- environmental impacts. And I think Governor Cuomo is having serious second thoughts about lifting that moratorium because in New York there is a major, major public outcry about the impacts of fracking. T.J. Glossier, is it wise in some cases to take a time out and study things like New York did? Well, I think what we need to do is to actually make sure we're regulating this properly. So uh, Mark, for example, mentioned the the way that drill, wells are drilled. Uh, the casing requirements for wells are in place, and they need to be enforced. We need to be sure that the depths of these wells go far below drinking water supplies. These wells are typically 8,000 feet, maybe, and the water supplies are in the first couple thousand feet. So we, we drill these and we make sure that the casings are submitted properly, they're inspected properly, all that is done. That will solve one part of the problem. I do think that we need also more transparency on the fluids that are involved in the fracking. There are chemicals involved in this, and we need to have a public uh, awareness and uh, access to that information. And there are trade secrets that some of the companies have, but we can manage that. There are ways to have that information given to government agencies, who are the regulatory agencies, and we can try to make sure that side of it is being done properly. Uh, We can also deal with the wastewater side. Uh, We haven't talked about that, but one of the biggest problems is the waters that come back up uh, after fracking uh, are contaminated with a lot of materials that are underground in these deep uh, aquifers or deep air deep formations and those wastewaters are actually some of the things that have caused the biggest problems both in terms of disposal and in the seismic or the earthquake uh, risks that have been uh, concerned in certain areas it's not the fracking that causes that problem it's the wastewater disposal and we need regulations that will properly control the quality of that wastewater or what we do with it and encourage people to reuse it. So that instead of using several million gallons of water to frack a well and then use a lot more water at the same amount the next well, you can reuse a lot of that water, and half of that water can be reused uh, time after time. And so I think there's things like that that we could do that will make this practice much more responsible and uh, a sound one while we continue to work on the things that Cassie is talking about for renewables and the kind of infrastructure investment that will take us in the long term over to a a whole different uh, energy supply. And that needs to happen quickly because, uh, you know, there could be contamination happening out there right now. That This is a case where technology and business is is way out ahead of policy and rules, right? So how is government going to catch up? Well, some of those rules are actually on the books now. We need to be sure we're enforcing them. For example, the casing requirements for wells. That's not new. It's a matter of making sure that we have the right people out there inspecting these wells as they're being cased and the like and, and done. Mark Zoback, uh, ProPublica reported a couple of years ago that there have been a thousand incidents of documented in Colorado, New Mexico, Alabama, Ohio, and Pennsylvania of groundwater contamination. So there's already a lot of, you know, there's already a lot of damage out there. Uh, I want you to comment on that and then also what to do about water management. Well, and that comes back to the uh, leaking well, you know, the poorly constructed leaking well problem. It's, it's not the hydraulic fracturing problem, and it, it has to be addressed. And, you know, on this, let, me, let me just back up and cover something. You know, when, when our uh, Secretary of Energy Committee uh, looked at the shale gas development issue, you know, we were unanimous in, 
in affirming that shale gas can be developed in an environmentally responsible manner. But we also pointed to 20 different areas where things had to be done better. And, you know, we've identified the problems and, and recommended solutions. And so, uh, you know, switching to natural gas is not a get-out-of-jail card. You know, you know, you, we, we have to proceed responsibly or we obviate the benefits. We totally agree. And, you know, if gas is going to be a transition fuel, well, you know, or a bridge, you know, a, a blue bridge to a green future, you know, there's got to be something on the other side of that bridge, and that's got to be renewables. And so I think we, there's a lot we agree about. The real question is how we, we transition from where we are to where we're going and whether or not natural gas, you know, is going to play a role in that transition, and there's no reason, you know, why it cannot. Now, the issue with water is, is just part of one of these, you know, 20 issues. In some parts of, of the country, you know, there's a lot of concern about the water that's being used for hydraulic fracturing. But it, it, it really is only a, like one or two percent increase in, in water use in that area. The flowback water, where it's convenient to inject it, like in Texas, it has been injected. Uh, where it's inconvenient to inject it, like Pennsylvania, it's being totally reused and recycled. And you get away from the uh, injection problem altogether, and you put the arsenic, selenium, and the other contaminants that come back in the, in, you know, in the flowback water, you put them back where they came from, because they're coming from the shale originally, and you, and you put them back there. So there, you know, there, there's a, it's a large-scale industrial process. There are lots of problems. But if you identify the problems, you can also identify solutions to those problems, and you can move forward in a responsible way. And what are the consequences for for the problems? If uh, someone is fracking, a company is fracking, and and groundwater gets contaminated, as there's there's alleged a thousand incidents, uh, what's the recourse for communities? What's the penalty, uh, T.J. Glossier, for uh, a fracker contaminating groundwater? What's the recourse? Well, there should be total accountability and responsibility. Uh, I'm not sure the difference state to state. Because um, there's a federal, in, in 2004, the Safe Drinking Water right. Act, there's the right. famous Halliburton loophole uh, that exempts fracking from, from that uh, process. Should that be closed? Yes, I think that the Safe Drinking Water Act ought to cover these kind of wells. And I don't know if everybody's aware of it, but this was an amendment passed in 2005 that exempted oil and gas wells, and uh, it was labeled the Halliburton loophole because a vice president at the time had something to do with Halliburton, and uh, there was a sense that there was... Well, came, all, came from the Energy Policy Committee that he had. Uh, but also the EPA at that point had said, Cassie, uh, that fracking was not a problem, right? Well, they did a, a report in 2004, and they looked only at uh, fracking for coal bed methane, and that report has been totally discredited. Um, they said, oh, it's fine, you know, no problem, or at least it was spun that way. And that after that report came out, then we got the Halliburton loophole. But the EPA now admits that we don't even know all the risks from fracking to water, and they're studying that in a very major process. It's been going on since 2010, and we won't have any results from that um, until 2014. But while they're doing that, fracking is going on around the country, um, uncontrolled or very, very lightly regulated, and the consequences are really, really serious. They were serious um, for a rancher named Ned Prather in Colorado who turned on his tap one day and drank a glass of water that had benzene in it um, at 20 times um, the, the, the limit that EPA considers acceptable. His throat started burning. Uh, he got dizzy. He was immediately taken to the hospital. Um, you know, he, he, he didn't die, um, but, but it was, it was serious. And, uh, that's a very, very rare instance where that driller was actually fined. But, um, you know, a, a, another story that for me really exemplifies a lot of the issues that, that we're wrestling with here now is, um, the, the story of Larry and Laura Amos. And they, they're also from Colorado and they experienced one of the earliest tracking booms out there. And one day, their drinking water well just exploded like a geyser. And state regulators came in, and they said, well, that was methane contamination, but don't worry, everything's okay. The methane won't harm you. And um, Laura um, and her husband and their infant daughter continued to drink the water. Laura uh, continued breastfeeding her daughter for 18 months. And a few years later, uh, Laura was diagnosed with um, an adrenal tumor. And it is a really rare um, 
condition that's caused by a chemical used in fracking called 2-butoxyethanol. And for a long time, um, the drilling company denied they even used that chemical, but then it finally came, it came to light that they had. And um, after that happened, the Amos's got a settlement, and um, the state regulators also fined that driller. But in that report, for reasons that have never been explained, Colorado regulators concluded that fracking didn't cause the problem, even as they were fining, um, even as they were fining uh, the, the company. And so officially, there's no problem from fracking there. But I think most people that hear this story say, hey, there's a really, really serious problem here with fracking and the chemicals. But the oil and gas companies, and I mean, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that, you know, we all, everybody here tonight agrees that there's a big problem with fracking in water because the oil and gas keep companies keep denying it. And they do that based on splitting semantic hairs and by benefiting from the fact that we almost never have a monitoring system in place that's adequate to detect a problem unless there's some major accident uh, or disaster that happens. If you're just joining us, Cassie Siegel is director of the Climate Law Institute of the Center for Biological Diversity. Other guests today at Climate One are T.J. Glossier, former deputy U.S. Secretary of Energy, and Mark Zoback, professor at Stanford University School of Earth Sciences. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, our Twitter handle is at ClimateONE if you're tweeting on this, and also uh, podcasts of this and other Climate One programs are in the iTunes store. Uh, Mark Zoback, where is this regulated well uh, uh, Cassie talked about Colorado. Colorado has since passed some, uh, is what some people might call some of the more uh, aggressive oversight regulations of fracking. Uh, is it Colorado, or where else do you think the regulation is going on, going well? Well, Pennsylvania sort of stepped up when uh, activity began there, and the then Secretary of Environmental Protection, John Hanger, uh, hired, I think it was, 90 new regulators and, and trained them and put them in the field and, and put them right to work. So there are states that are, you know, responding to the need for better regulation. I, 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 I want to um, address one point uh, that that Cassie raised, and you know, these 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 instances are, are really uh, heartbreaking and regrettable. And finding out what happened in each and every case is, is is important. But when you look at the data, you know, we we have a lot of experience. Uh, if you look at the Barnett Shale in the Dallas Fort Worth area, there's 16,000 wells. The study of those 16,000 wells by the by NREL, the, the National Renewable Energy Lab in, in Boulder, Colorado, a DOE lab, says that the methane emissions are no worse than report, you know, than than the well. Let's just put it this way: the total greenhouse gas footprint is half the amount of burning coal. So, are there methane emissions? Yes. NREL points to fugitive emissions and points to methods to to reduce them even more. But the net effect is that using gas from the Barnett Shale produces half as much uh, impact on, on, on the climate as, as burning, the, you know, if, uh, on burning coal. 16,000 wells, and there have been uh, reports of, uh, you know, cancer hotspots, all of which have not proven, uh, you know, to be valid once they're looked at carefully. And, um, you know, there, there are no reported cases of widespread aquifer contamination. Now, I'm not a, an apologist for industry. I, I'm, I'm spending a lot of my time trying to enact things like those 20 ways to do things better. But we have to look at what the data, you know, say and not the regrettable accidents or instances uh, and damn, you know, the entire process and the entire opportunity uh, uh, that is presented to start decarbonizing our energy system and moving away from coal. So, you know, and I, uh, so. On water contamination, uh, um, you say there's no reported incidents. Is there enough testing going on before and after to know? Uh, the, the question is, well, it's not happening. Well, are we looking because of water underground? How do we know what's and that's, in the water? And, that, and that's a fair point. The, um, most of the companies won't drill now unless they can sample the water ahead of time just to protect themselves from future litigation. But there's not enough monitoring after they drill. I, I fully agree. A lot more needs to be done. And if problems arise, we have to, you know, get to the bottom of it. And if we have to cease operations in an area until we get to the bottom of it and figure out what the solutions are, so be it. But, uh, you know, it's not, you know, there's nothing out there that, that you know, uh, argues for a widespread moratorium. Now, the issue about regulations is, is really um, complicated because every state has jurisdiction. And there are 23 states, I believe, where, where shale gas is now being uh, produced. And some states are, are trying to do a good job. 
Uh, one could argue whether they are or not. And some states are sadly not even trying. And so the real issue is how do we, you know, how to improve operations and especially improve the operations associated with the smaller companies. You know, as more and more big companies get into this business, they're doing a better job. They have more, more expertise. They have more at stake. They're going to be in the business for a long time. And um, they have more to lose if people, you know, go after them in, in, in lawsuits. So, you know, if you, if you actually look at the numbers, the big companies are doing a good job. The intermediate-sized companies are doing a okay job. They can do better. And the small companies are where the problems are. So we need a regulatory system that brings up the bottom, that looks at what the worst actors are doing and corrects the problems they're creating by not being as responsible as they should be. And that's, that's a state-by-state battle, and it's, it's now going on. And, and, and frankly, there, there are states that need to do a lot better. They need to try harder. They need to adopt the practices for regulatory reform that are working well in, in other states. Is West Virginia one of those states? Um, part of the testimony that was given to our uh, Department of Energy Committee, uh, a, uh, that, that statement was made. And so uh, we, we've heard that from others, that West Virginia was not doing nearly as good a job as Pennsylvania. It's not something we studied uh, independently. Uh, Cassie Siegel, do you agree that the little guys, little uh, operators are the problem? There are thousands of them. How are we going to get at them? Well, I think that they certainly are a problem, but, I mean, maybe the more immediate problem in terms of the regulatory discussion is that uh, a number of bodies, including the shale gas subcommittee that Mark was a part of and others, have made a lot of recommendations. And not surprisingly, when they looked at the question, could we do uh, shale uh, development better and cleaner, they found that, yes, we could. And they made recommendations like uh, capture the methane, capture the uh, traditional air pollutants, readily available measures today to do that, ban fracking with diesel, full disclosure of fracking chemicals, good common sense stuff, right? But for the most part, with a couple of very limited exceptions, they're not being adopted. The states haven't adopted them, and even the Bureau of Land Management, which is a federal agency in the Interior Department, manages oil and gas leasing on 40 million acres, of public lands. They're doing a rulemaking on fracking right now, and they adopted almost none of the recommendations of the shale gas subcommittee. Um, They've just put out a revised draft of their proposal. Um, They proposed it once last summer, and then they've just put out a new version because they weakened um, what they proposed on how to deal with trade secrets. And they've put out um, a proposal that I think most people will find quite shocking about the chemicals. They said, um, you know, if an oil and gas company claims that the chemicals used in fracking are a trade secret, they don't even have to give us the information. So the Bureau of Land Management won't even take it. And they say, oh, don't worry, uh, we'll, we'll make the drillers keep the information for six years. But you might have a problem more than six years out, or you might have uh, a company, probably one of the little guys, go bankrupt. Uh, they're gone. You can't find the information. And then you have somebody in the hospital And the doctor really has no way to get the information they need to treat them. So, um, you know, I mean, you can understand why anti-fracking activists are a little bit skeptical of, um, of, you know, this ever-receding claim of don't worry, we're going to clean it up because we know how to clean it up and we've known it up, known that for years, but it still hasn't happened. Cassie Siegel is director of the Climate Law Institute at the Center for Biological Diversity. Mark Sobeck, is it true that a lot of the recommendations of the panel you're on have not been adopted? Well, I think uh, Cassie said it well, and uh, I think every member of our committee is frustrated by the fact that our recommendations uh, were not followed to the degree that we'd like to see them followed. And um, and if uh, you could help get them enacted, I'd greatly appreciate it. <laughs> uh, T.J. Glossier, the Bureau of Land Management, uh, you were formerly in Department of Energy, not Department of Interior where BLM is, but it sounds like they're they're playing catch-up there. Well, they are, and they've been very aggressive in trying to promote uh, more energy development in ways that are are clean. So they've done a lot with solar on federal lands and they've done uh, more with wind farms on federal lands. And I think this was viewed by Secretary Salazar as one part of a strategy to try to to be more progressive. But the regulatory side of this does have to be dealt with. And I think that's one of the reasons that federal regulations, Safe Drinking Water Act, things of that sort, are one of the solutions that it 
can't really all be done at the state level. So what's the path for that? Is that an act of Congress to include fracking in the Safe uh, Drinking Water Act? Unfortunately, it is. It's Congress that passed that Halliburton loophole, and it's Congress that has to, to adopt that. And our Congress right at the moment is not doing too well. Uh, how would you all rate the Obama administration and their approach toward natural gas development, natural gas fracking, and oversight? Cassie Siegel? I'd give him an F. Mark Zoback? I'd give him a C. And I, I think all of this um, discussion is really has to, has to be a discussion in the context of an overall energy policy. You know, natural gas doesn't make any sense if we're not going to be decarbonizing uh, the energy system further. And we have to have incentives in place, programs in place, so that we can transition in a in a um, economically viable and socially acceptable way from fossil fuels to to renewables, and we all should see that roadmap, and we should know where we are on that on that road. And, and it's the it's the goal of the of the government and the current administration to establish that roadmap and get the public's buy-in and and recognize uh, what our long-term goals are. Is there a, an example of a bridge uh, fuel in the past? Because once. In, uh, Technologies developed, infrastructures developed, and, and invested capital in that infrastructure, and jobs are created. Then there's a constituency to defend and protect those jobs and those companies. So have we ever gotten off a bridge like that, T.J. Glothier? <laughs> well, I'd like to take that slightly different place, and that is that right now there's so that a means lot no. Of, well, uh, we can go back a long time to different trends, but I think your point is right, that once there's infrastructure built up, then there are a lot of interests in maintaining that. And the point I'd like to make is there's a lot of discussion about how much volume of natural gas we're going to have or oil and gas and how fracking has solved our problems. And we have a 100-year supply of gas. We actually at the moment are the largest gas producer of any country in the world. We've passed Russia now. Uh, we're a net energy exporter now. As of uh, two years ago, we are exporting more oil than we are importing. Those are, are things that are fine, but we should not expect this is going to continue forever. We should not build a whole lot of natural gas-fired power plants that are going to require us to keep that volume going uh, forever. We, we're terrible at our forecasting. Six, seven years ago, we were building LNG plants to bring natural gas into the country because we didn't have enough gas. Now we're talking about turning those around and exporting gas. Well, the one thing we know is we're, we're terrible at forecasting the, the gas supply, the gas situation, the prices. Uh, I think we ought to be cautious. We ought to use the gas that we have. We ought to regulate it properly. We ought to use it for this bridge process. Build facilities that will actually be appropriate to maintain for 30 or 40 years for their life. But don't build everything to be using gas. Uh, let's work this out, as, as Mark says, in a comprehensive kind of energy policy that shows a transition so that we are reducing the amount of energy we need overall. There's a lot we can still do in efficiency and, and in conservation, that we use more and more renewables. We rebuild our electricity infrastructure to integrate those renewables <coughs> and make it possible to, to do these things at higher levels. T.J. Glossier is former Deputy U.S. Secretary of Energy, uh, talking today at Climate One about fracturing natural gas. Mark Zoback, people who've been in the natural gas business a long time know how volatile the price has been and how wrong people have, fortunes have been made and lost betting on the price of gas. And whatever it is today, it's very low. It won't stay that way for very long. So I'd like to get your response to that and T.J.'s point about the future of the industry. Yeah, the, the gas industry is in an unusual place right now in, in the United States because gas prices are so low that nobody can actually afford to produce it because there's a, a, an oversupply. So the price has to reach some sort of equilibrium level where companies can o afford to go drill, frack, and produce the natural gas, and yet it is still uh, cheap, affordable, and um, done in an environmentally responsible way. So we, we, uh, we benefit from the uh, health, climate, and, uh, and, and pollution benefits of natural gas, and we're, we're not there yet. The difference between where we are today and where we were 10 years ago when we, you know, we saw gas prices spiking, is we now know we have this enormous resource that we can produce at, you know, at affordable and competitive prices. At, the, at a price where natural gas beats coal, um, almost every shale basin that's out there can be produced in an economically viable way. So, uh, you know, the situation has really, really changed. Um, 
you know, I, I know the emphasis is on, uh, of this program is on the United States, but I think we also should look at the global picture. You know, we, you know, we generate 2 billion tons of CO2, or we were until recently, by, you know, burning coal for electricity. You know, China is burning 7, and that 7 is expected to go to 14 in about 20 years. If, if you know, if the U.S. goes to zero through renewables or whatever, and China meets its increased energy needs with coal instead of natural gas, they're going to go from 7 to 14. Our reduction from 2 to 0 is going to be meaningless on a global scale. So China should frack. China should develop its shale gas resources in an environmentally responsible manner, because if they don't, they make the problem worse instead of better. But right now, they're on a path to make the greenhouse gas problem a whole lot worse than it already is. And... You know, this offers a bridge in China, it offers a bridge in, in South Africa, it offers a bridge in Argentina, it offers a bridge in Australia. Um, the import of conventional gas offers an alternative to India, for, you know, to coal. They're a very coal-dependent um, uh, country for energy right now. And so this, what, you know, what we do in the United States is important because it sets, you know, it not only defines the technology, but de- defines the standards that will be employed on a global basis. And so it's our job to do it right. And uh, we're not doing it right. And we are, there are at least 20 ways to do it better, and there are probably more. Um, but the, the stakes are extremely high, uh, and the, the stakes go far beyond uh, the U.S. border. Uh, point taken. Uh, could more renewables be part of that transition rather than more fossil fuels? Like, ha- like Cassie mentioned, Mark Jacobson at Stanford earlier, that, that this is just perpetuating a dependence on fossil fuels? Well, absolutely, renewables are, are, you know, are the solution. It's the rate at which, you know, they can be employed. Um, you know, uh, right now they're 1% of, of, of the, you know, the energy in the United States. Uh, we, we've got a long way to go, but that's where we need to get, and that's why we need a comprehensive long-term policy to get us from where we are to where we want to be. And it's wind and it's solar and, <clears throat> and it's energy efficiency and it's all of these things together. Mark Zoback is professor of uh, Earth Sciences at Stanford University. Our other guest today at Climate Winter, Kathy Siegel, director of the Climate Law Institute at the Center for Biological Diversity, and T.J. Glothier, former deputy U.S. Secretary of Energy. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, we're going to put a microphone right here where Ed is sitting and invite your participation to come and join the conversation with one one part question or comment. And I'm here to help you keep it brief if you need some help. And... Um, Invite, well, uh, the line starts with our producer, Jane Ann, over there. If you're on this side of the house, we please invite you to go back through that door rather than crossing these camera lines. And then we'll get you as uh, as part of the conversation here at, at Climate One. And I'll just ask one more question while we get that, uh, while we get that um, going. Let's talk a little bit briefly about earthquakes. We touched on it briefly, but earthquakes are a big deal as part of frac- fracking. And can that be managed, Cassie Siegel, the earthquake uh, around the wells? Is that something that could be managed and reduced? Well, I'm sitting here with one of the world's leading earthquake experts, but in my opinion, uh, it's a very, very serious problem, particularly from uh, the uh, disposal of fracking wastewater back into injection wells. And um, there um, has uh, been uh, somewhat of a controversy about an earthquake um, that was uh, took place outside Prague, Oklahoma. And... Um, uh, there was a lot of damage um, done there. Uh, some uh, homeowners had a lot of damage done to their homes and no way to pay for it. Um, Joe and Mary Renault were um, some of the fortunate ones. Um, their chimney fell into their living room um, right on top of one of Mary's favorite places to sit, and she wasn't sitting there at the time. And they had earthquake insurance, so they were lucky. And Joe Renault joked that he, he won um, the earthquake lottery, but he also said, you know, I think it was the injection of the wastewater, but the oil and gas companies are never going to admit it. Even if God himself came down and said the drilling company caused this earthquake, they're never, ever, ever going to admit it. And that's a big problem. I mean, I think there's been all these studies back and forth. I, I think the evidence um, uh, shows that, that injection almost certainly did cause that earthquake. I'd be interested in, in what Mark has to say on it. But it's a, it's a really serious concern. And here we have this, um, you know, expanding fracking and wastewater injection going on in California without the studies being done. We need to do to assess the risk. Mark Zoback. 
Well, not to be uh, too coy about it, the, the case of the Prague earthquakes really is kind of equivocal. Uh, I think there's evidence that, that point to injection causing those earthquakes, and there are, you know, issues about it that suggest they might be natural earthquakes. But, you wrote about but, Youngstown, Ohio, where there yeah, was yeah, a case. I, Well, I was just going to say that there are cases where the injection clearly caused the earthquake. So let's, let's talk about those where the evidence is irrefutable. Youngstown, Ohio, um, Guy, Arkansas, and the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. Uh, in those three cases, the injection of waste, waste water caused the earthquakes. Now, this is something we've known about, you know, since the 1960s when the Army was injecting wastewater at the Rocky Mountain Arsenal outside of Denver. What happens basically is when the water pressure increases at depth, it makes it easier for a fault to slide that was going to slide someday as a natural geologic process. It just sort of accelerates that process. And so we have to avoid this. Um, if shale gas is going to be developed in an environmentally responsible way, the flowback water has to be injected in an environmentally responsible way. And the best way to do that is not to inject it at all, to reuse it. But that's not required in many places. And so unless we do a better job of picking where and how, how much, how rapidly we inject the flowback water, more of these earthquakes are going to happen. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's, some, that's, that's another one of these problems that we have to get out in front of and manage properly. We can manage it. We understand the physics, but we don't often do the site characterization to know if there's a potential problem. And so industry has to be more proactive to avoid the problem instead of kind of coming in afterward and denying everything. Uh, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't get, it, get us anywhere. Let's have our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, I'm James George with EnviroBeat. Uh, there's a popular expression that politicians use is that all of the above energy policy. I support all of, all of the above. And I'm wondering, can natural gas fit into that? And is it a realistic uh, idea? For example, natural gas power plants can be ramped up and down very quickly to accommodate the gaps in wind and solar. But on the other hand, the low price is making it hard for those other renewables to get on the market. Sunlight comes in that. Double-edged. Who'd like to take that? Mark Zoback? Well, I, I think that's exactly the situation. Um, I think a lot of the environmental pushback, um, you know, to natural gas is that even if we solve the development problems, let's, let's assume we did, it's still a fossil fuel. We're just producing half as much greenhouse gas as we did before. We're, you know, we would like to reduce that to zero. And renewables are the way to do that. And if, you know, in the absence of a policy, the cheapest form of energy will prevail but that's not necessarily the best form of energy. And so we have to use natural gas as a, as a backup for enhanced deployment of renewables. You know, sometimes the sun doesn't shine and sometimes the wind doesn't blow. And we require, you know, a steady base load. And natural gas is the perfect backup for that. And as renewables and wind become a more and more significant part of the energy mix, it's going to need that, that, that relatively clean and rapid backup of combined cycle natural gas plants to function effectively. What we can't let happen, you know, is cheap natural gas deflect the deployment of, you know, of, of uh, renewable sources. And, and that's, that's a legitimate fear. And uh, it, it will take leadership and good policy to prevent, prevent that from happening. Good policy, meaning some subsidies. T.J. Glass here. I think that the all of the above strategy that President Obama talks about is all of the newer, advanced uh, approaches to energy. It's not just to use everything that we have, but to continue trying to advance our technologies and our practices in every area. So gas is a part of that, but it's uh, it's all focused on this longer-term transition to get somewhere else. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Hi, thanks. Uh, Carol Benedetto. So I get very nervous hearing about regulation and thinking about how that's going to be done right when we have budget crisis, when we look to the financial crisis. And, and in my opinion, I don't think we're regulating correctly. The SEC budgets get cut continue, continually, and then we have a budget sequester where you have no idea what's going to be cut, but probably regulation, in my opinion. So um, I would love to hear your opinion about why not ban fracking and put the cost of all of this analysis on the companies who make the money in the short term. It's, you know, it's a huge money-making proposition. So let them figure it out. Let them become transparent about the chemicals, about the pillage of the possible environmental issues. Let them, let them put the bill for it. What do you think about that? Cassie Siegel? Well, I absolutely agree with you that we should ban fracking and we should ban other forms of extreme and dangerous fossil fuel extraction. 
So, but there's been some examples and some noted ones with offshore oil drilling where the drillers paid uh, the revenue, uh, some piece of the revenue from those leases, paid the oversight agency, which TJ Gloucester then becomes dependent on the agency it's overseeing for its budget. That didn't. That ended in some sex and drugs and rock and roll uh, <laughs> at the Bureau of, uh, you know, at the Department of Interior. That didn't work out so well. Uh, the Minerals Management Service was yes. part of the problem. That's right. right. And that's where they get their revenue from offshore oil uh, leases, yeah. Uh, but I think the, the idea of a, is a, a sound one to have some kind of fee that comes from the energy that's produced that ought to go back to agencies that are overseeing the practices. Okay. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. My name is Babette Hogan. I've been doing a lot of research on fracking, primarily in West Virginia, but also in Colorado in anticipation of what's going to happen to California, though, of course, it's not as economically feasible to do it here as yet. My concern is that as we're beginning to see communities fight for their own rights um, and try to abate the process of large industry coming into their uh, communities, that governors are actually relaxing the regulations required. We've even seen... Governor Hickenlooper of Colorado drinking frac fluid and testifying that it's just all safe, you know. Um, how responsible should we be out for calling out the politicians that are making this all possible, this devastation? Thank you. Cassie Siegel, you're suing a whole bunch of politicians. Why don't you take that? (laughs) (laughs) We're actually mostly suing the regulatory agencies. Oh, okay. They they work for the politicians. Okay. (laughs) But, yeah, and, you know, I mean, what we want to see in California is we want to see the the fracking boom nipped in the bud because regulation hasn't worked other places. The regulatory proposal in California is extremely weak, adopts almost none, of uh, the shale gas subcommittee's recommendations. Um, and, yeah, you know, we can learn from what's happened um, in other parts of the country and say, hey, you know, we, we, don't, we don't need um, to, to suffer these, these uh, harms. Regulation hasn't worked. Let's just prohibit it. Let's, let's put our societal investment into clean energy. It's what we have to do because of the climate crisis. You get way more jobs for that investment anyway than investing in oil and gas. And, and we, just, we just need to make this transition quickly. Anyone else on that? Uh, although I think uh, some of the Dakotas would say that there's boom times. There's lots of uh, money and uh, revenue coming into Dakota because of the Dakotas, because of uh, the shale gas boom up there. People are getting paid lots of money. They Governors see jobs. That's very enticing for a politician who's got to run for office and sees money flowing into their state. Well, California is not North Dakota, and it's true that North Dakota does have a low unemployment rate right now, but they're having their health care system destroyed. They're having their, their roads destroyed. People are getting sick. We are sowing the seeds of terrible environmental problems, and it's a boom and bust kind of cycle, and North Dakota's been through the boom and the bust before, and they're left holding the bag. Um, I mean, I mean, I, I don't think that's um, that's what we want for California. You may get some jobs in the oil and gas sector, but what about the risk to agriculture and to tourism and other industries that employ way more people than the oil and gas industry does? Let's have our next question. Welcome. Oh, hi, my name's Adam. I live in San Francisco. Uh, much of the talk has been on natural gas, uh, but here in California, the big debate is fracking uh, the Monterey Shale for oil. And... Um, I'm assuming we're not considering oil as a bridge fuel tonight, so I'm wondering about the wisdom and possible impacts of fracking California for oil and uh, whether there's any efforts, uh, like there are in New York, that put a moratorium or some legislation in play to uh, first stop that and have the debate about it. I'll briefly say that we're going to talk about fracking in California and oil in the second hour, which is a, a different uh, radio program, uh, but we can briefly address it here in terms of uh, we've been talking about fracking for natural gas. Fracking is also used for oil. Uh, who would like to respond to that? Mark? Well, you know, basically it's shale gas technology, horizontal drilling and multi-stage hydraulic fracturing, applied to oil reservoirs that just have very low permeability. And there has been a big boom in West Texas in very old oil fields mm-hmm. uh, because it's working so well to rejuvenate production from long-depleted oil and gas reservoirs. And the idea in California is very simple. The, the Monterey Formation has a lot of oil in it, but has very low permeability, and the hope is that the application of this same technology 
you know, will work to enhance oil production. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Thanks very much. My name is Brent Plater. I just have a question. I, I, I was really interested to see the panelists acknowledge some of the constraints of regulation for fracking, whether it's regulation, uh, the problems with some of the agency corruption, financing it, finding a way to fund it. And yet there was still, for some of the panelists anyways, this kind of almost reflexive objection to a ban as an alternative regulatory strategy. And so I was wondering if perhaps you could provide us with some examples of some bans that have been effective or implement best practices, or if you, or maybe at the very least, just tell us what your bottom line would be to support a, a ban. What would it take for you to be in favor of a ban as opposed to a regulation-type strategy? T.J. Glossier, how about a, you know, ban's a big word. How about a timeout to allow uh, policy uh, to catch up to the technology, a pause? Because it's well, racing ahead, right? I think there is a lot, a lot of merit to that, and that is probably the way to characterize what happened in Pennsylvania, where Pennsylvania uh, took time to look at this, develop some good regulations, and I think I would agree with Mark's statement earlier that Pennsylvania seems to be uh, now approaching this well and appropriately, uh, and that some of the problems early on was with the wastewater, uh, which was written about where in Pennsylvania they took it to other states or they disposed of it in ways that were not appropriate, that's one of the areas that's been clamped down on, that people in in Pennsylvania now are not able to do that. So I think if it's that sort of thing, right now what's happening in California, as my understanding, is that the regulatory process is playing out. And uh, what we need to do is, I think, put the right kind of pressure on people here to get those regulations uh, strengthened so they are at the right level, so they'll actually protect us. Mark uh, Zoback, can you envision a scenario where a pause or a timeout would be appropriate to let policy catch up with technology and say, look, this thing's going ahead so fast, we've got to gotta, uh, hit the brakes for a while to uh, get it right before some bad mistakes happen? Well, I, I think that's actually already happening due to the low gas price. But, but I think the, the right thing to do is for public interest groups to make sure the government is, through the regulatory process, is only allowing development to go forward at a pace commensurate with its ability to regulate what's happening. And, you know, that's what should be done. We shouldn't open the doors to, you know, to development. Uh, it should, it should, you know, be occurring at the appropriate pace that it's being regulated properly. We're not relying on self-enforcement. We're not relying on old and inadequate regulations. Uh, we're doing sufficient regional planning. You know, a lot of wells are being drilled, and we have to look at the regional impact on uh, communities, ecosystems, infrastructure to do it right. And so um, I think in each and every state, um, the challenge is for the development to occur at, you know, at, at a, a constructive pace, at a pace where you're not doing more harm than good. Um, and that, if you want to call that a pause, I would just simply say, uh, you know, you, you slow down to adapt to local road conditions and, uh, and uh, don't, go, don't go any faster or accidents will happen. Well, but there's no real incentive for uh, a company that's you know, got investors trying to make as much money as possible. They're, they're incented to kind of drive as fast as they can to get that revenue flowing to, to, to monetize their investment, right? right? But that's why we have regulators, and that's why we have regulations, to not allow that to happen. Cassie Siegel. I, I appreciate TJ's perspective so much, but I cannot agree that they're doing it right in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, um, they have a law allowing um, trade secrets to be withheld. They have to be provided to doctors, but they have a gag order on what those doctors can do with the information. There's a uh, article in the uh, New uh, England Journal of Medicine just this week by physicians uh, decrying the uh, interference in the physician-patient relationship, saying they have to be able to share not only everything they know, but everything they suspect with their patients when they're treating them. Um, Pennsylvania has just limited um, the amount of a setback you can have um, between an impoundment of fracking waste and uh, residences. So they actually passed a law saying you can't require it to be any further away than like 400 feet or so placed a limit on that. They still allow road spreading in Pennsylvania of oil and gas waste under some conditions. So I just can't agree that Pennsylvania is getting it right. And the people in Pennsylvania are, are suffering terribly um, from from oil and gas right now, from the from the shale gas. Is it time for the federal government to come in? Is there a place for the feds to come in and do something on this? T.J. Glothier? Well, I, yes, I think there is. I think the Safe Drinking Water Act is an example that 
You know, and that was passed back in the 70s when we really had a serious problem nationwide with just water supplies. And there was uh, only regulation at the state level, so there was a national legislation put in place, and that has done a lot to improve the quality of, of drinking water supplies. I think that's appropriate to, to be doing that here, too. But how about on fracking oversight, or is that something that's going to be just state I, by state? I think it is. I think, for example, transparency of the fracking fluids, the sort of chemicals alike, ought to be done in some way that requires that information is available to be used. And if there are trade secrets, there are ways in the federal system to protect that. We do that with chemicals uh, and the like for uh, a lot of things. But the federal regulation gives us a a much stronger base. We have a couple minutes left, and I want to ask Cassie Siegel. Well, just on the the Bureau of Land Management's proposed rule on fracking and trade secrets. Um, So what they've said actually is federal employees are prohibited from giving out a trade secret and it'd be a crime for us to do so. So we don't even want the information. And they also, I mean, they know this is in their proposed rule. It just came out. You've seen it. And they, they say, um, you know, some, some states will, you know, will make an, there'll be an exception if the public interest in, in disclosure outweighs the company's interest in keeping it secret. But they, they're not even going to go there, the well, federal regulators. And, and there are a lot of examples of federal agencies, uh, some cases being uh, as bad as anybody in industry, and that's why the EPA has been the regulatory agency that has been effective in these areas. And I think EPA's regulations ought to be binding on these other agencies, too. Let's have our last audience question. Yes, welcome. Yes, hi. Um, I'm a bit new to the fracking issue, Forrest DeGroff. Um, <clears throat> is there any talk of having or setting up either at the state or national level something akin to the Texas Railroad Commission, which used to limit oil production in the state of Texas to sort of smooth out the ups and downs of oil production. I'll take my answer offline. Thank you. Well, I'm not T.J. aware Glossier? of anything like that. I, it seems to me that uh, right now the gas developments are really being paced by individual landowners, leaseholders uh, who can hire drillers to go ahead and develop that, and that the market is the thing that as Mark said earlier, is really moderating the pace right now because the prices are so low. Uh, we have a couple minutes left. I want to add, uh, finish on a uh, reference to a couple of movies that helped really shame, uh, frame, uh, perhaps shame, the, the debate around uh, around fracking. Uh, Mark Zoback, did you see Gasland? I did. And <laughs> did you give it thumbs up or thumbs down? I could, all ten digits down. Um, you know, it's one thing to point to these important issues of the environmental impact of shale gas development. It's another to misrepresent um, the issue so so dramatically. And and that was my problem with Gasland. Um, you know, the burning faucet had nothing to do with shale gas development. Had nothing to do with fracking. Two years earlier, it was identified that that individual had drilled a water well into an area with what's called biogenic methane. Methane that's just naturally occurring. And, it, you know, it was just done for uh, sensationalism. Uh, well, there was you, more than you, one you, person who lit their uh, faucet you, on fire in that you movie. Can, you can go, well, you can go down, you can go down the line. I, I think the important thing is to separate fracking from shale gas development. And shale gas development includes fracking, includes a lot of other things. Trucking chemicals to the site and, and accidents, spills at the site, um, misuse of uh, flowback water, um, injection of, of, of chemicals that should not be used. And a lot of them have been either abandoned or banned, and there is a movement toward you know greener drilling and greener fracking fluids. We need to do that, and we need to do it more uh, uniformly, and we need to regulate the fluids that are used and how they're handled, and we need complete and total disclosure. There's no excuse not to. Um, so, you know, let's kind of identify, you know, where the problems are arising and then uh, and seek the appropriate remedy and and get off this, this addiction to coal that we have globally for electricity. We have an alternative, and that alternative will get us to where we want to go, and that's uh, to a renewable energy economy. Cassie Siegel, was Gasland sensationalistic and uh, distorting? I think Gasland is one of the most important movies of our time. 
I think it's galvanizing a movement, and I don't think um, that Josh Fox misrepresented anything. He started covering an issue when he was approached by a gas company wanting to pay him $100,000 for the rights to his property. And I think he did an incredible job investigating that issue, telling people stories, and um, letting people know what was going on. And, you know, the thing with methane, no, here we are in the richest, most scientifically advanced country in the world, and we're still not capturing methane, even though it's easy and cheap to do. And in Pennsylvania, there was methane contamination of those wells. Maybe some of it's biogenic, but there's also um, studies that show that the methane uh, was associated with oil and gas. So... Um, very, very, very important movie, and, and we, we just need to keep building the movement because this movement against fossil fuels is part of what's going to get us to a rational energy policy, and it's going to get us to the greenhouse gas reductions that are just scientifically required in the next couple decades. We need to start decarbonizing in the next couple decades. Lots of people here have probably been to lots of fabulous talks here by top scientists about the urgent nature of the problem and what we have to do, those are big changes, and this movement against fracking is going to help get us there. T.J. Gloff, your last word on the urgency of decarbonizing the economy. Well, I, I think that part of what Cassie just said is the next couple of decades we need to be making changes. We need to actually manage this process so that the next couple of decades don't create even more problems. So I think the... The regulation, the transparency, the other things that are needed have to be done, and we do have to continue to work on all the other ways of uh, really making this uh, energy sustainable and appropriate. T.J. Glaufier is former Deputy U.S. Secretary of Energy. Our other guests today at Climate One have been Cassie Siegel, Director of the Climate Law Institute at the Center for Biological Diversity, and Mark Zoback, Professor at Stanford University School of Earth Sciences and a former member of Secretary of Energy Choose Fracking Panel. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One today. Good job.